Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me is our host, Dr. Russ McCullough, and our Menard Family and Philosophy and Ethics professor, Dr. Justin Clark. It is a mouthful, yes. Yeah, it's so, been a little while. <laughs> <laughs> it has, yeah. So, And you're kind of our, our graduate assistant alumni. You're like the, uh, a fellow or a, a policy analyst or uh, you're, you're something. You're a helper with the Gordon Institute, an alum, so... I'm so glad that you are are joining us as well, Jason. So, um, so today we're going to talk about the militarization of the police. We've seen a lot of awful things going on in the news media here uh, recently. When this recording is taking place, we're we're just, I guess, hopefully getting through the tail end of some of the rioting uh, that's been going on across the country as well as around the globe. We've seen some pictures, and so. Uh, but I just heard today that it's it has uh, gone down in Minneapolis where uh, the tragic event happened. And um, we did a reading group with our students in May where we talked about the militarization of police. We went through a number of, of different readings and a, a book written by uh, Radley Balco and uh, some other pieces that just talked about how the policing system has evolved both historically in the United States, uh, what it was like uh, way back when in uh, 1776, and maybe it was even earlier when we when we started, and how it's evolved over time with what we see the role of the police in in different areas. And so it was a real interesting talk, and I thought this would be an awesome uh, discussion piece for our podcast. So uh, Justin is a uh, a bigger expert on this area. So I'm going to let him kind of take the lead on working us through some of the issues with the militarization of the police. Okay. So, um, yeah, as Russ mentioned, we had just, we had a reading group that we ran with about 15 students on the militarization of the police. And that was in May. And, uh, you know, well before all of this started. So it it turned out to be very prescient and the, primary source material for that reading book was called rise uh, a book called rise of the warrior cop by radley balco and he is an investigative journalist and an author and he was um, an editor of reason magazine for a while um, and he wrote this book rise of the warrior cop and it it kind of chronicles in the first part the history of policing and what the police are supposed to do and then the kind of change in policing from, you know, if you think of the example of a police officer, you know, walking the beat in the 1950s to today where, you know, the the typical picture of a police officer might be uh, somebody in military gear with an assault rifle and uh, body armor. Essentially, uh, the rise of turning police departments into SWAT action teams and how those get deployed. And so one of the things that I thought was really interesting was when Balco said that one of the things driving the militarization of the police is that 
when we have these overseas wars that are going on, a lot of the large machines of war that are being used over there, when they come home, they need somewhere to go, you know, and so they go to police departments. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he wrote this in 2013. I just had to look it up because I knew it was older, but uh, you know, this was long before uh, present day. So seven years ago, he, the, this, it's been this slow, uh, sometimes faster in different areas, but the slow progress of making it a more militarized presence with, uh, like you say, the war machines and the type of guns and the type of equipment uh, that we use in war are being more and more implemented in our local police stations. What's really problematic is the, the rise of what's called what are called no-knock SWAT raids. You know where the police, with a warrant to arrest somebody, will show up. You know in the middle of the night um, and either not knock at all or give a quick you know knock knock knock, police knock 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 police. And if nobody's there within three seconds, then they blow down the door with a battering ram and run in with a SWAT team. With and this has happened. Yeah. yeah, and this has happened to a bunch of places where they shoot innocent people because they're at the wrong location right. or where, you know, um, the SWAT team will fire a stun grenade into, a, you know, an unlit room and end up blowing off half of a child's face because it's uh, in a crib. And then there was awful stories of killing dogs like the family pet again. And uh, uh, this even happened in Overland Park, Kansas here, not too far from, I think it was Overland Park or somewhere in Kansas, I think, maybe unless it was a border in Missouri, but where one of these raids went down and, and it turned out the people really didn't do anything. They had bought some growing lights. I can't remember if on that particular case, they had a little bit of marijuana or something, which is almost legal darn near everywhere already, but um, they were growing tomato plants or something. And so... Uh, yeah, people that, were... that gave them probable cause to blow down their door and arrest them and, and all of that. So there was a pretty big uh, case there. Um, and uh, certainly tragic. Yeah, with this no knock, I think the history was that um, you did have to knock and kind of wait for an answer, right? Was the was the law of the land? Is that how it went before the no knock stuff eventually came around? Yeah, um, I think they're legally required to knock. Uh, yeah. But uh, and, and I think the issue then, maybe you can speak about this just a little more, is, is the idea of liberty. Like, so the idea of knocking before you go in, the, the police and other people, reasonable people might say, oh, well, of course we don't want to knock and let the bad guys know we're here to arrest them to give them time to go out the back window or something. But it presumes that you actually have a bad guy on the other side. And it presumes kind of some other stuff, too, that I think takes away from the liberty of the individual. Yeah, it's a question of property rights, right? Um, you know, the question, the question is, where do your rights come from? Um, are rights things that are granted by the state? And therefore, you know, when the state feels that it's necessary, they can take them away from you, either with a quick knock or without even knocking at all. Or are rights things that you have naturally or given by God that the state needs to respect um, and that we want the police force to respect? And if you have the right to, uh, to property and you own your own house, um, then it seems like if your answer to where our rights come from is something like we have them naturally or, you know, they're God-given rights. And if you actually do own your own property, um, then it would seem like the police uh, don't have the right to uh, 
you know, bulldoze onto that property whenever they see fit. When you were provoking the students with that same thought uh, prop line of thinking, if I remember right, a lot of students are like, yeah, I guess the government does kind of give you the rights, right? I don't know if you remember that part of the discussion, but I felt like at least the few who talked anyway about that particular issue, they kind of seemed to be okay. I, I felt like that, that didn't meet them with the proper weight that, oh, I really do have a natural right. Like this is what we believe in in the United States, but rather it is determined by the government somehow. Is a, what was your feelings on that? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, with those reading groups, you've always, it's always so hard to let uh, let the students go where they're going to go, right? Um, yeah. Because a lot of the answers were things like, well, think about things like the right to drive a car or things like the right to vote. Those are things that, uh, you know, the government gives you. Therefore, all rights are given by the state. And um, that actually is, isn't, a, uh, isn't a, a valid argument. Uh, mm -hmm. the, that is the argument that, well, right X and right Y are given by the state. Therefore, all rights must be, therefore, given by the state. Um, yeah. And uh, it's not only is it invalid logically it's um if you press any of those students on things like well should everybody have the right to vote or should uh um should the right not to be enslaved be a political right and they go oh yeah it should it should right but yeah. if rights are merely granted by the state then the choice of rights is arbitrary and there is no way to criticize that choice yeah. And all of a sudden they can be taken away as easily as they were given to you too on that. And so, yeah. How, how do we, how do we get you as a professor, how do we get students to think more deeply about those types of issues? I mean, I know we've got our reading groups and stuff, but I mean, I, I don't want to get too far off track from the militarization of the police, but nonetheless, I, I'm curious because uh, it, it's not just students, right? I, I mean, I think it's the general public that is, is somehow able to just allow these things to happen. Oh, that's what they say to do. Uh, you know, what do you think there? I mean, uh, I mean, I think that's the purpose of a philosophical education is to figure out, you know, how these arguments work and to be able to notice a good one from a bad one. But yeah, yeah, uh, to, I, you know, it's it's very hard to do. Yeah, and. And sometimes it's hard to see it too. I, I know sometimes I even struggle when I hear somebody say something like, uh, no, that, that's, not, that's not right, but you might not know how to articulate it exactly. I mean, it, it's uh, definitely a deeper topic that I think our, when our country was founded, everybody took a lot more personally because we broke away from the British and they're like, yep, we get it. We are our own person. Uh, the founders kind of outlined this idea of the Constitution. It was just much more of a current event topic that everybody probably just took a little more naturally and, and, um, and lived it out differently than maybe we do today. And I also think there was, it was more a culture that had a respect for argument just because of the type of media that was being consumed. Things like the Federalist Papers or, you know, uh -huh. even a newspaper is, you know, you have enough time in that space to actually present a, an argument, 
you know, you're not doing, uh, you know, espousing your political ideology via, you know, eight second TikToks. Um, yeah. Well, t talk a little bit about the, the way that he brought up community policing uh, versus this me versus them or SWAT team approach. I mean, I, I thought that was insightful too. I don't think a lot of people always think about that. I actually just heard today on the news that the Minneapolis education system more or less fired the police from being the community resource officer. Did you, uh, Jason, you're shaking your head. You heard about that too. So they have effectively fired them. And I heard them interviewed on NPR or something where uh, they were more or less saying, well, we, you know, we had problems in the past uh, that, that uh, they said kind of was acceptable that the community resource officers, you know, seem to treat black students different than white students, more or less. They were, you know, implying some sort of, uh, of implicit racism. And so we just think now is the time to make a change. And then so the NPR, to their credit, kind of said, well, what about now the other students that feel like the next school shooting comes up and you don't have uh, potentially an armed person. Now, they might look for private sources where maybe they'll still have an armed person that's a private security guard of some sort. I don't know. But I thought it was interesting that here we're moving away from uh, police presence. But I don't think that'd be the case with the community uh, policing concept. So what, what, what was your takeaways from that? So one of the, the great parts of uh, Radley's, Radley Balco's book in the beginning is he talks about this kind of tension in what we want from a police officer. And there's these two conceptions of police officers. And, you know, this goes all the way back to, you know, what, uh, what the policing that was done in ancient Rome, where um, on the one hand, you can have a police officer be somebody who's a keeper of the peace in that they try to resolve disputes between individuals and keep the peace. And to do that, you might need to, uh, you know, uh, treat certain issues with nuance or know who these people are who are uh, in this dispute and why they have a dispute. And to do that correctly or to do that really well, you would need to be a part of the community that you're in. And so that's this idea that police should live in the community that they police. Um, and uh, when they live in the community that they police and are, you know, on good terms with all the people in that community, they're met better able to settle disputes. Now, the other uh, concept of policing is the concept of enforcing a rule and enforcing the law and doing it objectively. Um, now, the uh, the the selling point of this is that we want the law to be objective and to treat all people the same. Um, now, in practice, that has come to mean that police officers uh, usually don't live in the communities that they are policing anymore. And their objective isn't really to settle disputes between people, but to enforce the law. Um, and um, we, I think want uh, both at different times in our lives and, you know, at different, right. in different situations, we want both of those things, but those are two different things. And um, the conflict yeah. of expecting one of those things to do the other uh, and both have their drawbacks, you know, the community policing example, uh, you know, when police officers are uh, too intimate with their community, uh, what, uh, 
and not enforcing a rule objectively, but trying to make nuanced decisions, um, you know, another name for that might be things like playing favoritism, um, yeah. depending on how you describe it. So playing the buddy system and letting things off. So uh, which, yeah, that's the trade-offs. I mean, you don't want too much of that, but at the same time, um, some of that makes sense when the police officer knows, let's say the situation that you were going through, you just had a tra tragic event and you went and drank too much and you had a, you know, you got pulled over, you know, does the police officer just give you a ride home and say, you know, this is just one we need to chalk up to, to bad decision, but bad circumstances that you had to deal with or something like that. You know, that, that, uh, that, that level of knowledge sounds like the place where, where I would want to live, but at the same time, uh, a buddy system where the most favored people get better treatment than the, than the poor side of the tracks or something, that's not good either. So, um, so Jason, I wanted to go to you with the question since you're living in um, uh, more of the metropolitan Kansas City area, we had a little bit of looting and a little bit of breaking of windows at the, at the plaza area. Um, what's your thoughts on, do you feel like the police before the riots here have been more, uh, community friendly, uh, policing or are, or do they seem like a, a force to be reckoned with? Like it's me versus them in the, in the Kansas city area where you live. I mean, just personal experience. I thought it, it's more of a community atmosphere here. And I mean, Kansas city is a city but it's not that big so it kind of gives you that community feel and I mean I, I know a couple of police officers and like Shawnee and Overland Park and they're all really great people and do a lot for their communities so uh, it was it was definitely interesting uh, we were out of town for the plaza event but uh, there was a curfew set when we came back um, because of what was happening at the plaza and I live just north of north of that. Yeah, you don't live too far from where the action was and yeah. I guess you just don't know where how that stuff's going to evolve too if it would have came closer to where you lived or not and that's I guess part of the reason they have the, the curfews out but um, yeah, definitely some scary stuff and I, uh, I feel for the situation that seems to be out there of we've got protesters that might have some things that make sense for real change, for long-term change. Uh, I think our criminal justice system does have some issues that, uh, that could be um, improved upon in some way. Maybe it's chipping away at a number of things. And so um, I think this looks like a good spot to come to our break. And when we come back, I'd like to even explore, uh, it's an older document, so it's not real current, but I think it's, it's still salient on the Black Lives Matter movement on some of the things that they suggested way back in 2015 as part of their agenda on how we could improve the criminal justice system. And it was written by this uh, uh, Radley Balco that we were talking about. And he said, you know, if you actually read the document, some of this stuff makes some sense. And, and so we'll, we'll bring up some of those items that were on the list. And again, I don't know what it looks like today in 2020 on, on policy changes, um, but I assume it would only be added to and not subtracted from because some of the things that we'll share with you seem to just make sense. So we'll be back here after the break short. Thanks.
The Gordney Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at or call us at 785-248-2500. Thank you so much for joining us the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Okay, welcome back. So I left you with this article from 2015 written by this Radley Belko who was, was basically saying, don't take the Black Lives Matter demands as, as really, really radical, which you might have heard at the time anyway in the media. Um, if you go down the list, at which he dug into and, and looked at it, there were some things that seemed pretty reasonable to me as I read them. And so uh, he had kind of a quick rundown in this Washington Post uh, article. And so one of it was the ending the broken windows policing. So uh, Justin, you can help me out here, but I thought this was more or less, uh, let's pick up people on smaller crimes and then they won't pick up the big crimes. Was that kind of the gist of the broken window thing? Like let's, let's really be hard on them or, or really crack down on s small petty things and then it won't grow into bigger things. Yeah, this was a you know philosophy of policing that was actually implemented in New York. It's what led to stop and frisk. Um, yeah. Which is uh, a policy that, you know, is now widely derided and hated, but was, was popular at the time it was implemented. Yeah. If somebody looks questionable, we have the right to stop and frisk them, which is, which is pretty anti-American in general of innocent until proven guilty, basically. And, and everything that you go that I just said about, you know, owning your own property goes double, you know, for, you know, owning your own person and to be subjected to search on demand. You know, when you're not trying to board a plane, you're trying to walk down the street. Yeah. Um, that seems like a, a really... Intr intrusive violation of your uh, your rights if yeah. you do you do think absolutely that, it kind of reminds right. me a little bit when I've uh, thought about uh, um, immigration illegal immigration and so you know some people would might say well why don't why can't you just stop anybody and ask for their ID and it's like what just because they look Hispanic we can stop a real American and ask for an ID that that's not what our country was built on, right? I mean, that's, that's again, a vi total violation. And so I'd rather have us deal with maybe illegal immigration a different way, but to come to the point where we're stopping everybody and having them check their IDs or something is really a violation, I would argue, of, of just our rights and things that we hold dear in the United States. And it's also a tacit admit admission that, uh, your border policies aren't working if you have to check people yeah. once yeah. they're inside too. Right. Right. So, 
kind of piling on. So I thought that was an interesting one. I think they supported that with, with some data that, that, that just doesn't make sense. So I, I thought that was a fairly reasonable. Uh, I ending, say one? Go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to add on to what you said about uh, what Balco said about these proposals at the beginning, that they weren't that radical. He also said, not only are they not radical, but every single one of them is already implemented in some areas of the country um, and in some successful police departments. So that's another reason why you shouldn't think that these are too crazy. Right, that, that there's actually evidence in other places that, yeah, uh, that this stuff works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, ending policing for profit. So uh, that one was more of just having quotas and incentives on that the police needed to raise money for the department. Wasn't that where, where that one went for the most part? Well, it also has to do with uh, civil asset forfeiture. Oh, that's right. With the drug raids and stuff. Where uh, the police, if you are pulled over, you know, they don't have to charge you with anything. But if you have cash or uh, a suspicious type of property, they can just seize it, um, especially if you have a large amount of cash. Um, And then... Uh, they don't have to charge you with anything. You actually have to sue the police department to get your goods back. Um, yeah, and- yeah. It's just, uh, uh, again, the violation of property rights. This is all kind of um, uh, something that we should come to expect, but it, it it's funny how it can sneak into policy, right? It's like, oh, well, this bad thing happened. And so, oh, well, if we did it this way, this would be, you know, a way we could handle that or something. Somehow it's a solution to something that either maybe shouldn't have happened in the first place or otherwise. So, yeah, I mean, that's exactly why, uh, how SWAT teams got started, right? There was this, uh, incident in downtown LA that, um, you know, they needed a tactical response and they didn't really have it. So then, um, large police departments started forming special weapons and actions team uh, teams. Oh, special weapons, yeah, I think so. Um, and you know, in in a a policy that was supposed to be used in just very very dire situations was now being used, uh, you know, for raids in the middle of the night when it it was perfectly obvious you could have just showed up the next you know, in daylight with two plainclothes police officers. Right. So um, these solutions for very specific problems, once they're institutionalized and they find their little institutional nest, then tend to just branch out and grow mm-hmm. and um, be like overused. Little, little tentacles. So, um, Jason, did you have something with this point that you wanted to add on or was that something later? Uh, for the next one, actually. Oh, for the next one. Okay. Well, why don't you take it away here? The limits of force? Uh, yeah. So I'm always up for promoting some Malcolm Gladwell when I can fit it in. Uh, <laughs> that book, David and Goliath, uh, they mostly oh, spend yeah. the time talking about Ireland's troubles, uh, but they also talk about, kind of relate it back to U.S. police force and specifically the three-strike rule. Oh, and right. So it, it was interesting because he explains that um, the power of legitimacy. So if people don't feel like you're going to be fair, then they're not going to respond well to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they use examples in Ireland mostly, but they talk about uh, what happened in California back in the 70s, was it? 
Uh, yeah, are you talking about another riot time? Back when they were having a lot of troubles and they started the three strike three strike policy in the eighties. Oh, when they started maybe? in LA, on yeah, the three strike and three strikes uh, th- uh, started in nineteen ninety four. Ninety four. Okay, yeah. The 90s. So it was after okay. the after uh, LA riots, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, which was our other rioting time. That was... Yeah, and they said after all those years, there's just no conclusive evidence whether it worked or didn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this limit of force basically says use the minimum amount of force necessary to resolve a situation. Again, it's kind of like, well, duh, let's not be more. But yet these SWAT teams um, seem to the buildup of the arsenal, which uh, comes into our next one with the demilitarization that, there's been a government program that has allowed police, local police department to get government grants to buy military type gear uh, for their local police to use. And so um, I think I see these either equipment, guns, uh, you know, whatever battering rams, you know, you name it, whatever the SWAT teams is they're just kind of sitting around and it's like, Oh, Hey guys, wouldn't it be fun to use this? Hey, well, I heard there's a drug bust going on down there. And and so maybe it was, it didn't really rise to the level of bringing 10 guys and the whole SWAT team or whatever, but because things are sitting idle because this equipment's there, it's like, Oh, it's kind of human nature. Almost like, Oh, well, we want it. We want to use it. And so I'm not sure, um, how that would be implemented, but just having through their training, which I think was also brought up that, Hey, we always use the minimum amount of force necessary to resolve a situation. Obviously we don't have a police officer or a retired police officer on our podcast to be able to respond back to say, well, we do that already. That is part of our training. I don't know, but uh, that just seemed like uh, an obvious one that I hope is part of the, of the current training. So the demilitarization was the was the government subsidies. To me, that was a uh, related to that no knock raids um, to uh, lower that. Maybe the funding should go away. Uh, one of our students showed a picture of a somewhat smaller town in Idaho that uh, got grant money to buy this tank looking vehicle <laughs> as part of their somewhat local police department, which seemed ridiculous. So it seems like a lot of uh, dollars that are potentially being spent to beef up this police, which is going against this community policing idea. So uh, body cams in the film of police. So basically call for cameras to be on all the police officers. So um, I also think in today's day and age, um, that might be uh, reasonable. I can't think of of why we wouldn't want to have that. I think it would hold each individual police officer more into accountability. Of course, the good police officers who aren't doing the type of thing we saw earlier, it's like, oh, yeah, of course, I I want it taped so that I have evidence to show how I've been carrying on. So again, the incentive structure changes big time, I think, with that. Jason? So I read an article uh, the other day about Wichita. Um, Uh They the black it was like title black lives matter protests turns into picnic with the police (laughs) and they got to ask the police department a bunch of questions uh, both like at their individual tables with individual officers but also at the end they had this big uh community question time and uh this was one of the things that he listed that they're going to 
uh, start implementing more is more body cams. Yeah. I mean, the cost is so cheap nowadays, it's almost a no-brainer to not have a GoPro or whatever. It's something that even if it's not recording, when an event happens, even if it's just 24 hours worth of data from an incident happening and then it writes over itself, um, I think that would that would go a long way. So, um, And then the next section brought in just training. Um, I don't know if you got, Justin, anything to say on the training side here on what what are we doing? I think you mentioned before, a lot of times we might be recruiting ex-military people where the type of training you get to go into warfare, uh, should that be the same as what we do going into our neighborhoods for the police? Yeah, uh, that's that's a huge problem. You know, if you're, um, if you're recruiting ex-military people to, um, to do policing, um, that is implicitly uh, you're committing to a kind of enforce the law uh, version of policing as opposed to a community uh, the right. kind of community policing approach. Um, and uh, you know, I, I of course don't want to say anything bad about anybody who serves, uh, you know, serves in the military, uh, but it, it seems to be completely different uh, types of training that we would want those people um, those people to have, you know, you, uh, uh, being in a war, um, you are, you know, essentially opposed to the people who you are, who aren't in your force. Right. Um, Well, and Balco also talked about the, the whole chain of command concept when that changed, maybe, I don't remember if that was in the seventies calling Lieutenant and they started really following a more military approach to the chain of command. So, when, when you're in the, the services, which I was not, um, but you're taught to obey whatever, whoever above you was, whatever they were saying. The community policing thing really is upside down from that, right? Because it's giving discretion with the officer to some extent um, to say, okay, well, uh, here's the law, um, but today I'm going to let you off with a warning or whatever. So I, I think that's a little different than the military training where it's really direct. They say something, you don't question it, you do it. Um, yeah. And one of the hardest things to train people to do is to train them to kill, right? That's what it's one of the hardest things the military has to do is to uh, get you to override your instinct not to kill mm-hmm. um, and to do so at, uh, at the command of your superior. Um, yeah, so I mean that kind of brings up the the last few points of the thing is just community oversight, community representation. So having the police be infused in the community. Um, again, you're probably not having a high turnover of police within the community. There's always going to be some normal turnover uh, in our town of Ottawa, where we got thirteen thousand people. Um, you do end up knowing the police officers usually, and they're there for an extended period of time. So smaller towns, I think, have a, this just is by, kind of by its nature, uh, being smaller, that uh, we're not dealing with a metro police where they're going all over the Kansas City metro area, and where we don't have a lot of that personal contact. And there are large metro areas, like, you know, in San Francisco, where the police force, barely any of the police force in in metropolitan San Francisco lives in San Francisco. Yeah. 
yeah, they'd be traveling in. So yeah. Um, some of the other details just got into independent investigations and prosecutions. Um, so uh, all of that stuff that we just went through, I read it and I felt like, well, yeah, that, that does seem like some changes. And uh, like you were saying earlier, why aren't we doing this already type of thing? And, and so um, there are police departments that have adopted this stuff. So this is real change that I think can can help the situation. It's probably not, of course, any sort of end-all solution, um, but uh, certainly there are some ways that we can uh, move the needle so that we're less militarized and more of us versus them. And I think there are some helpful suggestions, at least in this list. And, and so this is not an area of specialty for me, but I know there are some economists that do study more heavily criminal justice, and, and I think there's some improvements that can be done. So final, final thoughts here, Justin? Um, yeah, I just second that, that call that there's, there are some things that can be done. Um, and uh, making changes that have already been successfully implemented in other areas of the countries um, is relatively low cost and um, you know, it doesn't require um, a drastic uh, systemic overhaul. And so if you okay. are, if you okay. want a drastic uh, systemic overhaul, uh, maybe let's try the cheaper things first. Yeah, yeah, right. We can take it in, in phases. And I, I kind of wonder my, my question back to you of how can we get students thinking this way? I guess there's probably some philosophical type stuff that, maybe is currently not a part of policing that should be. I mean, maybe part of their education is learning about liberty and the right, natural rights and, uh, of course, not getting too deep, but nonetheless setting the stage of this is what we believe in the United States, this is the role of the police, and, and here's some underlying uh, philosophies that support this as a real way of thinking about it rather than the enforce uh, the law uh, philosophy. Maybe there could be some additional uh, training uh, that touches on that as well. Yeah, I think, you know, we have, uh, you know, if you go into the medical field, you have to take a medical ethics class. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, your business majors take business ethics. Right. Um, I think uh, a history of policing um, would be good too. Um, and yeah, thank goodness we're having you teach our business ethics class now um, when, compared to when I taught it a few times. But uh, the reason I even bring that up is that I think having a philosophy professor teach those things as opposed to maybe, let's say, let, let, for all I know, there is a course on police ethics that they have to take as part of the police academy or, or part of their training. But if it's taught by a police officer that was out of the military and they said, here's the textbook and here's what you do. And, oh, yeah, well, we got to be good to everybody. And, you know, who knows what type of ethics and philosophy is actually being taught. So who knows? I, again, I, I don't know if maybe they're doing a great job of it. Uh, obviously, they're, they're not. Uh, but, but again, maybe the, we have bad apples in every, in every place. And so, um, I, I suspect that we're at a point where we could systematically improve the philosophy training and, and ethics that, that go into that process is what I guess. So, but I'm happy to take some email suggestions from you listeners. If you, 
uh, already know of something, uh, we'd be happy to take those suggestions and, and run with it. So that is our podcast for today. This has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. We appreciate you all listening. And uh, if you happen to get the chance to, to give a rating on the old uh, iPhone or the Android also has the, the ability to give some ratings, uh, that'll help drive some listeners more if you like what you hear. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.